Hey everyone and welcome to the Rumcast. My name is John Gullah and here with me is Will Hookinga and we are your color commentators for this podcast that talks all things rum related with the people who love and shape it. Uh, we have a really fun and informative interview lined up today with none other than Sean Caleb, the master distiller of Demerara Distillers Limited, often called DDL. But first, even though it's April already now, Will, we're still in the throes of March Madness. That's right. As it were. Yeah, that actually that that came into play a little bit early in the interview with Sean because he is a Princeton graduate and Prince the Princeton Tigers were one of the Cinderella stories of the men's NCAA basketball tournament this year. So we got into that very briefly at the beginning. I was delighted to discover that he had been following the team. So that was yeah. really fun. But you know, this morning we were getting ready to record this introduction, and I know your Miami Hurricanes are set to play Hell in the final yeah. four tonight. yeah, I was going to say, you better better give me a, a, an entry for that, because I am super, super excited for the Miami Hurricanes to be in the final four for the first time ever. So uh, we have a watch party tonight for the game nice. and, uh, against UConn, and really hoping that uh, it goes well and we can make it to are the, you, are you the making, finals. Are you making Hurricanes? <laughs> Shit, no, but that's a really <laughs> good idea. How did you idea. not think of that? I don't know. I, I, well, remember, I'm not like a huge cocktail person. I was definitely going to make some stuff, but now that you say that, like, I feel like I have to do that. Do you that know what now. ingredients you're going to need? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so the kind of the key ingredient is going to be passion fruit syrup. So you know, it's a that's a little harder to just get off. Yeah. I mean, you can get it. You're in you're in Miami. There's actually there's an easy way to make it, which is to buy uh, like frozen passion fruit pulp and you basically oh, just okay. mix that with simple syrup. Well, I mean, it's going to be hurricanes all around at the Gullah household tonight <laughs> for the watch party. So, thank you for that. <laughs> all right. Well, you hit me via text with a fun idea before we get to our interview with Sean, which was in the spirit of March Madness in April, um, making a bracket of El Dorado slash DDL sourced rums and yeah. seeing how each of us comes up with our own seeding for this bracket. So basically, we came up with two quote unquote regions like it would be in basketball, one of which is the El Dorado region, which is these are eight rums that are all not only made by DDL, but DDL also owns the brand. And then mm -hmm. as many listeners will know, there are many third party brands that source rum from DDL and have kind of built a brand around that. Pusser's is an example. Uh, and then there's also rums like, you know, Hamilton 86, Hamilton 151. Mm -hmm. So we have these two separate regions and you and I tasked ourselves with seeding them one through eight. So for those who aren't into basketball and sports. Basically, the way these tournaments work is teams are given a quote-unquote seed, which is just kind of like a ranking. So mm -hmm. if you're the number mm -hmm. one seed, you are thought to be an extremely good a favorite, team, a favorite, mm -hmm. a heavy hitter. Mm -hmm. If you're eight, in, in this case, that's the final, the lowest seed in our tournament, you're kind of mm -hmm. the, you're the underdog, basically. Yeah, and the it's, dark horse. it's a sliding yeah. scale in between those. So this actually, first of all, we should mention kind of the factors that we determined to grade things on. And we'll probably each vary a little bit in this, but um, you listed flavor, value, usability, 
And then I threw in one as well. I agreed with all those. And I threw in one that we came up with the idea of legacy because, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the NCAA tournament, sometimes teams get a little bit of a boost if they're, you know, one of the blue bloods. So Duke University, UNC, they might get a little bit of a boost because they have that legacy of basketball. So I wanted something like an older brand, a brand that has a, a long legacy for me, got a little bit of boost in the seating. So what was this hard for you to do, by the way? Did you did you struggle with this? I, I did uh, in the sense that some of that, you know, they, they are a lot of these brands. Well, first of all, let me say DDL produces a lot of rums, yeah. right? As you're pointing out, we couldn't do this with a lot of distilleries. But with this one, I mean, there were easily, we pointed to 16. And there, yeah, there are some are, we couldn't include. So there will be some omissions right. that people will probably disagree with. But we, we tried right. to do our best. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And, and then from there, trying to see these and think about those categories that you just mentioned. Some are really great in one, but don't have the others. Mm-hmm. And then some are all around it, like across the board, uh, you know, established in all of those and that's where i met the the difficulty mm-hmm. i was like well which which one do i give and then of course i'm taking my perspective as you know what would i use this for and how would i experience it uh, personally yeah. so yeah there was a couple times where it was tough and then of course i'm sure you found the same thing the difference between a five and a six seed or a four and a five seed might be a little tough right so right for me doing the ddl side of the bracket which is almost exclusively El Dorado rums. There's one that is not mm-hmm. an El Dorado rum. That one was actually pretty easy. I did it pretty quick. I didn't have to think that much about it. It was the non-DDL bracket that was yeah. really tough for me. But let's go ahead. Do you want to start with the El Dorado side of the bracket? Let's do Yeah. Okay. I think that makes sense. And we should um, mention the rums that qualified for this are uh, El Dorado 3, El Dorado 5, El Dorado 8, El Dorado 12, El Dorado 15, El Dorado 21, Diamond Reserve 151. And then the final one, we debated between including El Dorado 25 or doing kind of like, you know, El Dorado more, more recently has had the single still line of releases. And mm-hmm. I ended up settling on doing kind of a catch-all selection for it can be any any three of the Port Morant for sales in more single still releases not the cask strength ones because also we're going for broad availability for this so that's also why we didn't mm-hmm. do ibs or you know any of the legendary velier releases and stuff like that we're going for the mass market stuff that's out there that's accessible right and i think those single still releases are a little bit more accessible than el dorado 25 so that's what we settled on great so how do we want to do this do we maybe to- let's let's actually let's reveal what our top three seeds were and then do the rest because i think okay. it is we'll have some suspense with that okay so, my number one seed, El Dorado 15. And like I said, I didn't we're, have to think very much about it. Uh, we're sinking up on that, <laughs> and I agree with okay. you. That one was a gimme to me. The familiarity of the product, the value, the legacy, all of it just is there. It feels like a number one seed right. to me. And yes. as I talk about in the interview, that was one of the first rums over like $30 I ever bought. So, it just it yeah. has kind of a, a, a special standing for me. For my second seed, again, this might—I don't. This might be a surprise to me. It seemed fairly obvious. Obvious. I went with El Dorado Twelve. 
Uh, same thing. We matched up. So <laughs> there's this no is the drama in the sun <laughs> Right. I mean, it, well, these, as you mentioned, like this was the easier side of the bracket right. to do, I think. And those two were the easy gimmies that, like I was saying, North Carolina, Duke. Right. Like, they're they're the, the two that <laughs> stick uh, very much in terms of legacy. And uh, yeah, and, and I like them both. I, you know, sometimes I'll go back and forth in terms of what's my favorite of those, mm-hmm. really. Uh, so, you know, they're both really, really great rums and really great values. Yeah. So it's it's an easy pick on those one and twos. And those are just the two that I always, if I'm introducing someone to El Dorado, those are the two I'm going to tell them to start with yeah. uh, because yeah. they thread that needle of price, quality, representation of the style and everything like mm-hmm. that. So third seed, maybe we'll split here. This one was okay. probably the one I thought about the most was three and four. Okay. So three for me is El Dorado 21. Okay. Uh, so now we diverge a little bit. Okay. I went the exact opposite direction. I picked the El Dorado 3. Oh, interesting. I, I, I thought where to place El Dorado 3 was going to be a really interesting decision in this bracket, and we did go in different choices. So yeah, I'll say, also, I'm not ranking these in order of, like, which ones I think are the best. Again, it's all those, it's all those factors Correct. go in. So I'm not saying El Dorado 21 tastes the third best to me or anything like that. Right. For me, right. it is, it, it's, it's, I like, I actually, I do like 15 and 12 better than the 21, but the 21, when you carry that age statement and that exclusivity, that's to, to me, I've, I've got to boost you up somewhat in, in the, in the seating because you can't have a like a 21-year-old rum as an underdog in a tournament like this. So it has to be somewhere in the top four to me. So I, I slotted it in at three. But tell, tell me why you went with well, Eldorado three instead. We're mostly aligned because uh, I'll just reveal it's my number four seed. Okay, so okay. I agree with you that it had to be in the top four because it is a very fine rum. It's just not as good as I'd want it to be for its price. Yeah, I, I agree. That's basically it. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was your number four? But but yeah. what? Tell tell me that. I think some people will be surprised to hear El Dorado three as high okay. as the third seed because I think that is the cheapest rum out of all of these. It uh, it's an aged rum, but it's it's clear, so it's filtered. So right. mixing rum. I, I I mean, you could sip it. It's fine to sip. I don't know anyone who's just sure. going to reach for that all the time as a sipper. But so why is it as high as three for you, especially for a guy hey. who's not into cocktails? Well, I mean, if I'm going to make a cocktail, this is one of those rums that I would have a go-to for. Okay. So, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this in the past, but yeah, El Dorado 3 is so so versatile, uh, and it it is value for what it does, and that that's really what it is to me, is it's the opposite in a lot of ways of the 15 and the 12, but it doesn't lose its legacy okay. in, a, in that way, so that's where it was for me. I'm curious to know where it ended up for you, yeah. actually. So I'll go ahead, I'll reveal my remaining picks, and then you can okay. reveal yours. So okay. in fourth, I had the Eldorado single still line. Okay, okay. Fifth seed, Eldorado 8. Sixth wow. seed, Eldorado 3. Okay. Seven seed, Diamond Reserve 151. Okay. And eight seed, Eldorado 5. So, okay. putting those out there, what stands out to you? Anything uh, well, you really disagree with? 
Not really, to be honest. We're syncing up on seed seven and eight as well. Okay, I have right. Diamond 151 on seven, mm-hmm. and eight is Eldorado. F- um, the only thing we really seem to disagree on is you're placing Eldorado three a lot lower than I. Um, the other thing that I would mention, I put in the single still at seed number five, Okay, which is pretty, pretty close. close to where you... Um, and there's just value questions there as well for me. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea and the experience. I just think they're very pricey, especially not for the casks. Uh, the cask yeah, we're going series. with the standard right, regular proof. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that that's really the only thing I would say I, I have somewhat of a disagreement on is where you placed the, the three and why why did you put it so low <laughs> and can you tell me about the that choice? I think part of it for me, it's not because I undervalue white rums. It's just mm-hmm. because I think maybe, maybe it's because there are other white rums I would reach for before that one. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. a bad white rum. It's just not the highest on the list for me. So that's why I put yeah. it a little lower. But it does have versatility... I do think I see I I enjoy Eldorado 3 as a white rum more than I enjoy Eldorado 5 as a, you know, lightly Light or younger aged, aged rum. Yeah, I just yeah. that rum to me I, I I would always reach for the 8 instead of the 5 just because I think yes. the 8 you get a lot more character than you get in the 5. Yep. So yep. that's why I put Eldorado 5 last and the Diamond 151 I think is solid. It's it's not my favorite. 151 associated with mm-hmm. this distillery which we'll get into on the other side of the bracket right. but it, it has a very narrow use case so i had to put it a little farther down but agree with yeah you. that's where i landed so okay we're not too, we're not that far apart i feel like our yeah. philosophies are similar i think we're really going to get into disagreements on the other side of the bracket probably well let, let's let the disagreements begin <laughs> okay let's do it so you um, you start with this one tell me what you had okay. as your your top seed well, let, let's go over real quick the, the, the rums that we had in this oh, right. uh, yeah, for yeah. seeding. So we started with saying we have the Hamilton products, Hamilton 151 and Hamilton 86. I've never heard someone say tech- 151 before, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be different. Okay. I don't know. No, it, so those two products, even though they're technically, I guess you would say they're independent bottler, right? Mm-hmm. Well, but yeah, yeah. They're so I, I did, widely I said, available. I said no yeah. IBs, but yeah, Hamilton yeah. is kind of yeah. It, but they're 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 ever present, yes. right? You can find these in a lot of places, and so I US, think that's why they're included. They're well, in the U.S., yeah. right? And they're very well known. So we have those two, and then we have the Pussers line. So mm-hmm. the Pussers original, you have the Pussers Gunpowder Proof, which is, um, what is it, fifty seven and a half, fifty four and a half. Okay, yeah, sorry, fifty four and a half, and uh, Pussers fifteen mm-hmm. year. Uh, then you have the Lemon Heart products. Lemon Heart has the eighty six proof, and then the one fifty one. And then we have uh, Woods Old Navy Rum. Right. We wanted to so, get one of those kind of iconic, you know, British yeah. brands in there. We don't really have access to that. I did try Woods at some point. I had a little sample bottle several years ago. Can't say I remember that much about it, but I do know it is. I, I had I had a favorable impression of it for the use cases I think it would typically be used for and the price and things like that. And we, we we had to get one of those iconic you know brands from from Europe in there as well. So it was kind of yeah, between yeah. that and we. I also thought about including Lambs, but mm-hmm. I just I feel like at least among rum fans, Woods has a little bit better of a reputation. And I also have never had Lambs, so that's where mm-hmm. it landed for me. Yeah, it feels like it would be an omission to not include it. Yeah. So all right, so starting with the top three seeds here, okay. I have a feeling our our number one seed is going to match, but the rest of know. it is where we're going to fight. Know. All right. I'm going with Hamilton 151. <laughs> okay, for the top seed, not my top seed. No, no. Okay. Um. So my top seed is actually Pusser's original, 
And what? <laughs> oh my god! What are you talking about? Well, okay. So what I'm thinking of is that I think is one like. Pusser's is a very widely available brand, especially yeah. in the U.S. More so than Hamilton, I would say. And I think so is Bacardi. I yeah. Think, <laughs> I think, especially when you're getting into rum, it's one of the for many people. It's one of the first ways that they experience Demerara rum, and also just the Agreed. brand name okay. itself. I think has a long legacy to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, again, mm-hmm. it is not my favorite rum out of all of these but i just think in, in terms of all those factors i listed it's it's a very prominent very well-known rum that introduces a lot of people to the category so i put that as my top seed sure i mean it, i i don't disagree that it's a very prominent rum but i also feel like compared to a lot of the other things on this list ah I, I'm having a hard time finding hey, the John. Here's the, the thing. thing: yeah, one seeds get upset sometimes, including in this year's tournament. It was the fastest all four one seeds were ever eliminated. That is true. So well, you've you've got to have some one seeds in there that are kind of paper tigers, and that's how I that's how I view <laughs> pussers. Okay, I know it's going down. It, it it might not be in the first round. Actually, let me see what I have it matched up against. It could definitely go down. I don't, I think I'd have it winning the first round, but we'll get to that. Uh, so I don't know. I look forward to seeing that trend continue. I think with it's, your, uh, I think it's a second round upset probably uh, yeah. with pussers at the one seed. But again, maybe I waited legacy a little too strongly here but i mean i'll go ahead and say like that the hamilton rums are my favorites but yeah hamil like hamilton hasn't been around that long as a brand and it's it's not as widely available i think and it's just it's i think it's iconic to rum geeks but it's not to like broader mass market yet so it felt a little too much for me to put a hamilton rum as a one seed you know i i i I can kind of see your point with that. And at the same time, I feel like every single store I go to in multiple states has those Hamiltons mm. sitting on the shelf. That, I, that has not I, been my I've experience. not been everywhere. I mean, well, I don't go to the, you know, Tennessee as much. Yeah. Uh, New York markets, the Florida markets, the uh, other places I've been recently. Okay, Texas. so just the, the two states that get almost more rum than any other states in, in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> Texas as well, I saw it. Um, they, I don't know. It just feels like they're always there, and I think there's a good reason for that. Oh, I, I think do it's too. because it's it's a superior product. Uh-huh. So and and yeah. tell me, tell me why you went with the 151 though, because that has the most narrow use cases. I think of of all these realms. Of course, you can always proof it down yourself. But so you so so tell yeah. me. All right, so the reason I went with the 151 here, I agree with you. It's not a sipping rum. It's jet fuel. You're not going to just straight ship it. At least most people. Um, but there is. I just feel an inherent value for the price of that rum okay. at a at that strength. And if I'm using an over, mm-hmm. uh, it's either a Jamaican or it's this. Yeah. And I I don't need anything else in my bar, you know, other than this. It just feels like the usability is so high. It feels like it's it's um its reputation is probably the greatest among any of these choices. And that's just where I feel like it shines. So the reputation, the usability, everybody knows about this rum. I think all the bars are used, uh, you know, it just, that's why I went with it. So I I would definitely um, say the reputation among like rum enthusiasts, for sure. It's probably the highest, uh, particularly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people in America. Yeah. So 
I won't quibble with it too much. I will say my second seed, I went with Hamilton 86. So this is the counterpart to the 151, the lower proof version. And the reason why I went with it as the two seed over the 151 is just because I think it's a little more approachable for you know, the mass market, sure. I, mm-hmm. I guess it sells more than the other one. And I also just think it's, um, it's, it's not offensive to me to sip that rum. Actually, you can sip mm-hmm. 151 as well. Like I actually think it drinks pretty well for the proof. It's still pretty, like, I, I'm not going to pour it as a sipper ever. Like I've consumed it neat before, but mm-hmm. I'm just never going to reach for that. It's just like, yeah, let me, you know, pour a couple ounces right. of Hamilton 151 and knock it back. So Hamilton 86 <laughs> is the one that's a, a little more, I think it just has more use cases without having to kind of, you know, proof it down and, and things like that. So that's why I went with it as the number two seed. So what was your number two seed? Uh, my number two, I, I went with Pussers, but I went with the gunpowder proof because I, I just feel like there's it's the best of both worlds uh, in the sense that I would be able to sip this, but also be able to use it in many drinks. Uh, it just it feels nicer i don't know uh, like when i see that bottle i'm like yeah this just feels right i do think uh, i think it's better than the yes. original proof so for yeah. for sure uh, i those I, i've actually done all three of those together the pusters mm-hmm. 15 as well in a lineup and i thought the gunpowder proof really stood out well in in that lineup yeah. so that's why i gave it the number two and just to round out my top three i i went with the pusters 15 for my third seat okay interesting um, it, it's a very nice sipping rum. The value obviously is is more of a problem there, mm-hmm. and the use case. You're, I wouldn't want to use this in things other than really to sip in. Mm-hmm. But for me, from my perspective as a person who does a lot of sipping, the Pusters Fifteen is one of those. It has to be. I think it's there's there's some Pusters Fifteen that was clearly sugared uh-huh. uh, or sweetened. And there was some that is less. Uh, so I prefer the far less sweetened. So mm-hmm. I'm talking specifically about that. Um, but even the sweetened, I think, has a really good reputation among those people who may not be as much into rum and worrying about the, the sugar mm-hmm. levels in it. They still seem to enjoy that a lot. It has a, a very uh, reputation. Yeah, for me, I have Pusser's 15 ranked a lot lower. And it's mostly mm. just it's it's a price thing and what you end up getting it's it's fine to me i'm i'm just i'm not a huge fan of it i have the gunpowder proof ranked higher but to round out my top 3 uh in third place i had lemon heart 151 so this is when we're getting into the 151s again this is not my favorite 151 my favorite is yeah. hamilton 151 which i have as my fourth seed but i'm going yeah. with lemon heart has that legacy name you know it's associated with so many legendary cocktails and things like that so i it does i i f- i just feel kind of underdog vibes more with hamilton and so i wanted it to be the the lower seated 151 so i have hamilton 151 yeah. at four then i have pusser's gunpowder proof which i think is uh i think is the best from the pusser's line personally mm-hmm. but i, I you know, Hamilton 151 isn't complete and total underdog. So I have it. I have those going head to head in the first round, you know, the four or five matchup classic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then six lambs, old Navy rum. Again, that's another one. I, fi- oh, woods, right? Or woods. Oh, yeah. yeah woods. Sorry. I, I wrote yeah. lambs on here. I meant woods, old Navy rum. 57%. Yeah. So it's actually going up against Lemonheart 151 in my little three, six matchup. Seven, I have Pusser's 15, and eight, I have Lemon Heart Original, which I just feel like the Lemon Heart 151 is the one that people know. You know, the the standard 86 proof Lemon Heart is out there, but it's just, to me, it's not that great of a run. So that's why I have it yeah. down there. Uh, I'll finish off my bracket here real quick so we can get to the interview. 
I, I just want to say Lemonheart 151 is my four seed, but I hate it. I, <laughs> I don't like it. Personally, I, I'm not a fan of this. Uh-huh. It is almost this weird kind of uh, electric flavor I get from it is the best thing I can say. Uh, you know, when if you uh, suck on a lemon, right. yeah. you get that kind of like citric acid, like almost like an electric kind of response. Right, it's like licking a battery. That from that rum. Yes, like licking a battery. That's exactly. I get that from this lemon heart product. And so it is not something I enjoy. But that said, all the things you said, I agree with. Yeah. So I put it as the number four seed. Then my number five was Hamilton 86. Again, I agree pretty much with where you're at. It's just I don't ever reach for that as much as the 151. I, I went with the Woods number six. I've only had faint experiences with it mm-hmm. like you did. But I know its reputation is there. Seven was the Pusser's original because you were just wrong to put it as the one seed. <laughs> <laughs> and eight is the Lemon Heart 86. We did match up there with that one. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like we, we had one major disagreement. And again, let's be clear. These are not rankings, but it's, it's seeds. You know, we're, right. we're, we're trying to yeah. approach this from the standpoint of the uh, bracket makers in the NCAA tournament. You got you to build in some upsets. You got to give a, a legacy boost and things like that. So mm-hmm. we're concerned mm-hmm. about ratings here as well. But with all that said... Let's go ahead and transition. The interview with Sean Caleb was fantastic, to borrow a word from you. We've been trying <laughs> to set this up for a, a couple of years now. Sean is a busy guy, but was was gracious enough to sit down with us. And, you know, this is one of those interviews where we could have talked for three hours. We, mm-hmm. we tried, we really focused a lot. We, we heard a little bit about Sean's journey into rum, which is really interesting. You know, how he went from Princeton to, to working at DDL right after that. It's kind of a fascinating story. And then we got deep into the the various stills, you know, the Port Morant, the Versailles, the Inmore, which, by the way, when you hear us say Versailles, I understand that the place in France is pronounced Versailles. In Guyana, I'm glad you mentioned they that. Yeah. call the Versailles still the Versailles still. So yeah. we are honoring that pronunciation. Um, it's weird because they pronounce every word, every letter in Versailles, mm-hmm. but then Iflot, <laughs> it's got a bunch of <laughs> That's true. letters well, that are would not you, pronounced. How else would you pronounce Iflot? Exactly. <laughs> so Versailles is a little more pleasant sounding than that. So I guess so. We you know, we talk about the the heritage of those stills, some of the differences, you know, the, the Port Morant still, the Versailles still, both wooden pot stills, you know, why do they taste so different and, and, and get into those sort of things. We talk about some of the the legacy marks at DDL, you know, they have twenty something marks, some of which are less common than others. We get into all that. We talk about the high ester rum production at yeah. DDL, which was really fascinating, and just a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, really ran the gamut with this and, and had a great time. So I'm really happy we were able to get this interview and get it out there because Demerero Distillers is just one of the icons in rum. You can't yeah. talk about rum without talking about Demerero rum, and they make all of it. So anything to add, John, before we go to the interview? No, I, Sean Caleb is, is a – his knowledge of everything is obvious – uh, and him being able to share a lot of uh, insights into what they've done over the last 20 or plus years that he's been uh, in and around that story. Really just excited to have been able to share that time with him. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break and then go over to the interview with Sean Caleb. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, Rumcasters, do you want an easy way to stay informed about what's new in the rum industry? If so, check out therumlab.com, where you can stay on top of everything going on across the rum world right now. From their detailed infographics that dive deep into individual rum expressions, to their weekly rum newsletter, to live streams with leaders in rum, there's always something new to learn. Plus, you can get all the info on their annual rum events they put on across the United States, like Miami Rum Congress, New York Rum Fest, Chicago Rum Fest, LA Rum Fest, and San Francisco Rum Fest. So visit therumlab.com and sign up for their newsletter now so you don't miss anything that's happening in rum. That's therumlab.com. Now back to the show. All right, we are here with Sean Caleb, Master Distiller at Demerara Distillers Limited. Uh, if, if you've ever had a Demerara rum or an Eldorado rum, there is a high likelihood that Sean had a hand in making it, unless they're like the only ones you've had are really, really old. But Sean, we've we've been really looking forward to this interview for a long time. DDL, I think, has to be one of the it's kind of in the first handful of distilleries. I feel like anytime I'm introducing someone to rum, it's one of those iconic distilleries of the category. And for me personally, El Dorado 15 was one of like the, the key rums in my own rum journey. I think it was mm-hmm. maybe the first or second rum over $30 that I ever bought. It was one kind of one of those eye openers for me. So <laughs> yeah, just really excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. It really is a pleasure to talk about Eldorado, and thanks to you and John for facilitating this forum. I am sure there'll be lots of exciting topics to get into, so it's always a joy for me to talk about that. It really is you know, the love of what we do here. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I live in Nashville, and I remember this would have been before the pandemic, maybe 2018, 2017, you were actually here and you gave a talk at the Nashville Cocktail Festival. And I was in the audience. I wasn't doing the podcast yet. I didn't really know anyone in the rum industry yet. And I really wanted to come talk to you, but I was intimidated. I, I mean, you obviously seem like a very nice, warm person, but you know, lots of people were talking to you and I wanted to come. I didn't get the chance to. So I'm really glad to be able to talk to you now. But one thing I wanted to bring up really quickly before we get into rum, because anytime we have someone on the show, we always go back. And, and try to watch as many interviews as, as they've done and learn a little bit about them. And I didn't realize until last week that you are a graduate of Princeton. And last week when we were originally going to do the interview, at that time, your Princeton Tigers were kind of like the ultimate Cinderella story yes. in the in the men's yeah. college basketball yes. tournament. Which <laughs> Exactly. Right. <laughs> okay, okay, great. I, I wasn't sure if you still kept up with the team and everything. You know, yes, I, yes, I, yes. I don't know how easy it is to watch in, in Guyana, but I was cheering hard for the Tigers. I wanted them to keep going so that they would still be in the tournament when it, it came time for us to interview you. But great run. Unfortunately, they, they lost. But I, I wanted to ask when you so, so you went to Princeton. I believe you finished school around 2003. I assume you, you did more with your time there than just going to basketball games and, and rooting for the team. But I read that after you graduated, you approached DDL about a job. And I was just kind of curious. I wanted to go back to, you know, everyone always wants to hear the story of how you got started in the industry. But I imagine you as a, a new Princeton graduate, I'm imagining all, all the options you have career-wise that you can do. And I, I wanted to know what led 
led you to kind of look into El Dorado? Was it rum specifically you wanted to get into? Were you considering other options? What was kind of that that journey like for you? All right. So I need to take the history back a little. So I graduated high school in 2000. Okay. And then I taught high school, advanced math, physics, chemistry, and biology for three years. I started Princeton in 2003 and graduated in 2007. Oh, okay. My timeline was a little off. uh, I got it. Yes. So 2003 was actually when I entered. Okay. And that was the year I actually agreed with DDL to return to Guyana. So back in 1998, when I... So in Guyana, there are two school even examinations. There's the first that's more or less the ordinary general secondary education level. Mm -hmm. And then having passed those, you can elect to go for a fourth two years to do the advanced level examinations. So I did that from 98 to 2000. And then after that, I taught advanced, like I said, the math and science for three years before going off. So in 1998, when I did my first general secondary education, you know, the pressure is always on, well, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> right, if, yeah. I was also a bit conscious that if I did well, and mm-hmm. the media, you know, approached, or, you know, what do you want to do with your life? What was the experience like? You pray for exams. I had to have some answer. And I <laughs> didn't really have a very clear answer in my head at that time. So over that summer in 98, after having sat all of my general secondary exams, I did some research into a lot of fields. I started first by asking, what, what, what do I like? What am I passionate about? Yeah. And I was very clear about it. I love math and science. I wanted to do something that was applied. So not strictly theoretical, but had some application. And I was always passionate about Guyana's development. I always mm-hmm. felt that, you know, too many of our Guyanese scholars leave and contribute to shores, you know, abroad. And, and that's fine. You know, we all make choices based on what's best for us. But for me, I really felt it was important to reverse that, that day. And so I did some research on what were some of the potential fields and when I landed, so I had a list I worked with. When I landed in chemical engineering, that just resonated. Yeah. It mm. up, like, love at first sight. You know, <laughs> what I read, the volatility of the field, what it entails in a broad and general sense, as well as the specific areas one may specialize in. But more importantly, it was a very highly sought after field because at the time, there were extremely few chemical engineers mm. in Guyana. The most famous at the time was, in fact, the prime minister of Guyana. But, of course, oh. he had entered into politics. So the need for chemical engineers was, was very high. He was kind of busy. Also, yeah. <laughs> because it was an applied field, it would allow me to actually apply my knowledge to industry, which I felt was probably an efficient route to mm-hmm. get into attributing uh, my knowledge back to Guyana's development. So it made sense all around. And it yeah. just so happened that later in 1998, um, I think that sometime around October, November, the press about DDL winning the International Wine Experience mm-hmm. Round Trophy for the Elder Rada 15, that was the first time they had won it. That really drew me in. So right away, you know, having decided a chemical engineering was what I wanted, DDL and the Elder Rada 15 shot to the top of that list. Yeah. So by the time I would have left school, you know, my thoughts began to, you know, form up around boards. I approached DDL actually in 2003 after I was admitted to Princeton. Okay. 
I was admitted early in December of 2002. So I had some time to plan for my departure to campus. As I would have approached DDL, and the reaction I got was exceptional. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like as soon as I sent my application in, and so the human resources director at the time was traveling. When he returned to the country, I got a call, probably three or four calls, because I wasn't home. He kept calling almost incessantly, you know, is he back, is he back? <laughs> then he asked my mom for a number to get out to me where I was. At the time, I was volunteering with a youth group. And so they got that number and got out to me. He said, can I meet you at 7 a.m. the next morning? Oh my yeah, gosh, 7 a.m. Wow. was that anxious. So got up early, got ready, met with him. And, you know, DDL are the kind of folks that you have a deal, you have a deal. You know, they, mm. they stick to their word. And I can tell you that from that first experience and all, there's been no regret. So, yes, that's a bit of the story as to how I got in with DDL. And I've had no regrets since. It's great to hear. Like, I, I thought at first you're like, well, I love math and science. And I thought you were going to say, but I love rum more. But it was it was more like a, a much more, you know, everything kind of came together. The universe and the stars aligned for you uh, and all these things coming together at once. huh? Absolutely. That's so interesting to me. So you essentially then, you you were at Princeton for four more years after that, and you almost, they basically kept a seat warm for you. Were you, were you able to go down and, and kind of start doing anything while you were still in school? Or was it just, you know, wait four years and then jump right in? Well, ordinarily, I know DDL would have preferred me to come back every summer, and, you know, kind of get my feet wet a little bit while the operations are. But you only at Princeton once. <laughs> so right, I decided right. every summer I would play right. with a different experience and broaden my horizons. So the first summer, I actually spent doing research with our Caribbean Environmental Health Institute oh, in one wow. of the Caribbean islands, St. Lucia, beautiful St. Lucia. So mm. I spent the entire summer there and actually Princeton funded that trip. So it was good to nice. get a different kind of experience, more on the environmental side. The second summer, I spent right in, in New Jersey, but doing research at a small startup oil and gas company. They were researching some novel catalysts that would help to improve the thin rating of gasoline. So I found that interesting and a different mm. experience. Yeah. And then my third summer, I went to further afield, so I went to Australia. Oh my I did gosh. research one of the top professors there in the uh, University of Brisbane. So... I was really adamant about seeing a different part of the world, getting a different kind of experience, because yeah. I believe very much in transporting knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, you know the, the, the more you know, the more perspectives you can bring to your job, the better you're able to apply your knowledge. So rather than kind of be tunnel vision on RAM and DDL only, I was able to gain a much, much wider variety of knowledge, get experience working with different people right, of different right. expertise. And all of that has been tremendously impactful, you know, once I started here at India. That's an amazing journey. And I can see how all the, the diversity of experience can kind of inform you having a completely unique perspective that you then bring to to DDL. So getting to DDL now, it's it's so interesting to me that you know, your, your first kind of job at a distillery, you bring all this incredible experience, you arrive there, and you're immediately surrounded by some, not, not all of these stills, but some of the stills are some of the oldest ones in the world. And so I'm imagining, what does that look like when you're coming into a situation and you have to start kind of learning the field a little bit? 
And are, are, you, are you sitting there like learning on day one on the Port Marat pot still? <laughs> the, one of the <laughs> oldest stills in the world. Is that intimidating or do they kind of like warm you up to that? Well, I can tell you to be quite truthful. My first day, I went home with a headache. I'm oh, very no. first day at the distillery. It, 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 was, it was kind of overwhelming. There was quite a lot to take in. And beside that, I was, apart from learning the stills, I was also carrying the quality control department because I was mm-hmm. asked to hold the fort because uh, there was a bit of a transition taking place there. So it was quite a lot to take in a very short period of time. And the pressure was immense. I started first learning our Saval still because, you know, that's the most versatile of the stills that we have. And I felt that understanding that would uh, give me the right mindset when mm-hmm. I, once I approached the other stills. And indeed, that proved to be an effective strategy. It's a very complicated still. And so I, I really worked with the operators, you know, mapping out all of the lines, all of the columns and all the interconnections and understanding how the different products come from the different production schemes just under one still. So having perfected that, other stills became enormously simpler. Not simple, but certainly simple. I've heard you talk about, people have asked you, you know, which which stills are the most complex or hard to run. And I, I think I've heard you say the Inmore is kind of the one that is the, the most difficult. So was yes. that, do you work yes. your way up to the Inmore? Is that like the final boss as you uh, level up on these stills? So, so the way I did it was to, from this above, to look at the metal coffee stills. Mm-hmm. From that, recall that the Enmore still is an earlier version of the coffee. So the mm-hmm. principles are similar, except, of course, the, the construction is different and the material, of course, is wood. So at that point, it became simpler to understand the principle of operation of the Enmore still. So while the Enmore still is the most finicky from the point of view of operating, actually operating because there are fewer levers and knobs to control, to tightly control what we want in the product. Mm. So it becomes a bit more tricky. But from a conceptual point of view, it was not as difficult to understand. And certainly the survival still. And definitely, once I understood from the survival and also understood the coffee still, the metal coffee still, mm-hmm. and more was easier to understand conceptually, even though in practice, it was more finicky to keep tight control of the product quality. Yeah. If that uh, makes sense. I think so. And before we get maybe too deep into it, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be somewhat familiar with all the stills, but it might actually help. How many total stills do you actually have now? Let's do a there? quick quick inventory. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of units, we have 14, but they cover nine different types. There are actually some stills that we don't talk so much about because they don't produce rums. So for example, we have a, a redistillation still Mm-hmm. That produces neutral water, mm. and we okay. have a gin still as well. So it's quite a bit on the property. So for rum stills, then it's uh, you're using principally. Right. So we, so we have the Saval still. We have two of those. The coffee stills. We have three of those, and we have a newer version that was installed in 2011. We have the, of course, the wooden coffee, the double wooden pot, single wooden pot. We have a high ester still, which we don't talk quite a bit about, but I believe Ooh. that we are working on a marketing program to launch something along those lines. Oh. We, of course, oh. have our column still, which has five columns, works under multiple modes of pressure. 
So that gives a lot of versatility. And of course, uh, it's the most technologically advanced and automated of all the stills that we have. So we also, like I said, have the redistillation stills. So just for around there, there's quite a bit that, that, that we can offer. And with having that much diversity in different stills, I guess, I, and I've never worked a still. I don't want to speak for Will. I don't think he has either. But are, are there things that you learn from one still that you can apply to others, especially you've got some of the oldest stills in existence, and then you've got some of the newer ones, as you mentioned. Are there things that are applicable that you learn from the new stills you can apply to the old or from the old that you apply to the new? Yes, absolutely. Um, So, for example, when we were commissioning the newer stills, um, because those stills have a lot more opportunities for control and for the quality, we were able to identify where certain wanted and certain unwanted product nodes are concentrated in the color. And because we had that ability to still more or less isolate flavors in a much more defined way, as we have options with the older stills, it really helped us to understand specifically what components were more important for product flavors or what were less important, either in a positive or a negative way. To give you one example, when we were commissioning the newer still, there was a particular note that we found a bit, you know, undesirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was too much in the note. So we had to find, first of all, where in the column it was coming up from. And then, of course, find a way to reduce that in the product. And we were more successful at that. Um, more importantly, because we now found what that was, we could do the chemical analysis on that particular unwanted component and identify chemically what it was. And we, more than that, were able to now identify the specific sensory characteristic that that component carried. And what what was that it? meant was, even if we were to go back to produce on our older still, we now had a very specific flavor identifier hmm. that was part of our assessment criteria. That if we found notes along the lines of orange that was a bit too much, we knew what we wanted to remove, and we tried to figure out where on the older stills we can remove them. Hmm. So although the older stills did not start off giving off as much flexibility, because of the knowledge that we gained in commissioning the newer stills, we were able to apply that product knowledge, that flavor chemistry, in fine-tuning, even the way we went back and operated the older stills. And we incorporated those to upgrade our work procedures. So definitely, there have been many, many instances where we learned from one still what was useful for the product, and we transferred that knowledge to the second still. There was not an instance where, you know, actually, it was one of my most exciting things. It was um, a eureka moment, maybe. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely was. It, it literally and absolutely was. <laughs> we were trying to commission a light, but there is a particular note that we're looking for, and we weren't quite getting it. But by the process of, of iteration and elimination, we mm-hmm. narrowed down from a, you know, a broad list to two or three suspects. And I, I always had a view as to chemically what was responsible for that compound. Not everyone agreed, but that was my strong view based on the research. But nonetheless, we were trying to find where we could find this compound in its highest concentration. Oddly enough, we found it in one of the auxiliary equipment that really? refluxed through the uh, one of huh. the distillation columns. When we found it, well, actually, I was in a meeting at that time 
you know, the guys were in the field, you know, doing their thing to try to take off samples, etc. So once my meeting was finished, you know, I left it out, returned to the distillery. One of the guys was just outside the office, sitting there waiting for me. He said, how, how, how pretty do you want your stuff? Oh, I mean, you kind of know the answer already. He said, smell this. When I spelt it, Eureka. <laughs> we went over to our laboratory to do the chemical analysis. I kid you not. That component was exactly what they thought it was. Wow. I mean, nice. I get a lot of credibility in that very moment because I'm like, yes, I knew what this 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 sensory note was coming from. I feel like and it was so like Sherlock Holmes, Holmes right? You're like you're like elementary, my dear Will. It sounds there because you know you're young and you're zealous. And you, you truly are a blank page. Yeah, so you're learning yeah. everything. And yeah. so you start from fourth principles and work your way up. But having figured that out, we were able to know, well, of course, not just fine tune how we produce that on the new still, but to take that knowledge back to the older still and say, well, mm-hmm. aha, now that mm-hmm. we know where, what exactly we want, we figure out where we can find it on the older still and let us zero in yeah. on that production scheme. Yeah. You know, so every batch, you you have a stronger guarantee of getting yeah. that particular note each time. So yeah. I can tell you many, many more stories, but I think we, we can go on forever, but I have to stop here. <laughs> this is way too Otherwise, nerdy I, for I me. I have to make yeah. you guys honorary distillers or Didier. <laughs> there yes, you go. we will we'll take you up on that. Um, I was going to say, it, before we go on, it's way too nerdy, but that reminds me exactly of the story of the discovery of the planets. I think it was Uranus and Neptune. I don't know if anybody but me is going to be familiar with that, but they did the exact same thing. They did all the mathematical calculations behind it. They figured out where it should be. They went and they looked for it, and boom, there was the planet. It almost sounds exactly like what you did. So I just have to say that's, a, that's an awesome story. Uh, very cool. Wait, and so I wanted to yes. double check. So, so the, the undesirable flavor that you were trying to eliminate was notes of orange. Was that right? And then what, what was the... It was, what was too much. It was well, too, too much. much orange. Too, too much, much orange. Too much orange. Too much orange. <laughs> What was the one that you were able to isolate that you were searching for? What was that one? Well, we were looking for fruity, but the problem was that with the intensity of orange, it was masking some mm. of the orange other notes we were looking for. You know, apples, bananas. One one of my colleagues, you know, he described it as corn on the cob. You know, corn on the cob. And I get where he really? was coming from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, corn on the cob. <laughs> you know, one of the funny things about flavor chemistry is that. Everything operates not in isolation, but in synergy. Yeah. And sometimes one thing may be too much and throw the balance off. And just in the right amount, it just comes out so beautifully delicious. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, when I say undesirable, you need to have some of it, but we were getting too much of it in the product. Yeah. But knowing, first of all, what it was, and then figuring out how much was too much, then we're able to then dial back on the hook just the right, right quantity. Is there a particular rum that uh, is out there right now that possesses that quality particularly strongly, that one that you were searching for? Like, is, is there a bottle some, someone can go out there and taste and be like, that's the note that Sean was talking about? The Eldorado 12, ah, definitely. Okay, so it's, it's but very of course, present. The Eldorado 12 is yeah. so beautifully balanced that you know, we don't have that problem. <laughs> this was more about the process of discovery, where uh-huh. you're kind of working through those minefields and navigating just the right path to get it perfect. We're able to do so. Very, very proud of that. 
there, there's one thing I wanted to ask about the, the the variety of stills there, and you know, in going back and reading the story of of DDL and all the stills that you have, it's kind of this story of consolidation over the years, where of you know these older stills, the Port Morant, the Versailles, Inmore, you know, they were at other distilleries, and as those distilleries closed, they you know they get moved to other ones and, and things like that. And one thing that struck me is just even as the industry modernizes and you have all these modern stills, I, I can just imagine so many people looking at these old wooden stills that, you know, no one makes stills like this anymore and just kind of casting them aside or, or, d- or deciding that they're they're too much trouble. You know, mm. I know there's maintenance with them and everything. What And I know this was before your time to an extent, but I'm curious if you have any perspective on just what kind of allowed... DDL to recognize the value of those stills and be like, these need to be maintained. There's something incredible that comes out of these that can't be produced elsewhere. What allowed them to kind of have the foresight to hang on to those stills rather than attempting to kind of just duplicate them with something more modern? I think there are two principal reasons. Perhaps one has to do with the fact that uh, because we were historically a bulk rum suppliers, if it didn't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so entire uh, rum supply chains would have developed around particular stills, particular marks of rum, and of course the characteristics of those marks of rum. Uh, so it was probably simpler to, you know, maintain the same production scheme to keep supplying the thousands and thousands and thousands of, of proof gathers that were required. Historically, too, up to the point where we launched our own brands. I think I would say the second reason is perhaps cultural. Uh, Guyanese have a habit of not discarding anything. Hmm. Okay. You know, you, so you, you still see cars that are over two decades old and it's working. And if there's a problem, you go to the mechanic and he is well versed in fixing and will fix to fix and fix until it's back out to go again. And so there was a bit of that going hmm. on. There's, there, there's a third element, and I know I said two earlier, but the third element... <laughs> add in the that. third one, add in the so, third one. So having brought those stills all the way through our independence and eventual Republican status as a nation, it wasn't until 1976 when we were allowed to own brands, and they were local brands, but all of those, of course, would have been fed in by the older stills. By the time 1992, 1993 came around when we launched Alvarado, it would have inherited runs produced on those very stills. Mm. So at that point now, there was now the aspect of history and heritage to preserve as part of the story of the early brand. So while it might have started, I would say, by dint of the supply chain characteristic, and those demands more or less be easily met through producing the same on the same stills. Mm-hmm. And then later on, like I said, culturally, Guyanese said to hold on to what they have. Mm-hmm. It really has to be broke and totally out of use before they get rid of it. You know, think of like your cell phone. You know, every year <laughs> Apple releases a new phone and people upgrade. Yeah. Every right. Yeah. There's no, there's no Port upgrade program, right? <laughs> yeah, I would no like Port to turn Rock this still in, please, <laughs> for the new version. <laughs> the Enmore nope, 2.0. Nope, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and certainly by the time we had a brand that was built around that provenance, mm-hmm. it became even more especially important to maintain the heritage that those stills represented. So I would say those are the main reasons, historical and present, why we continue yeah. to do so. 
Yeah. So I guess the Guyanese philosophy of, is if it's broke, fix it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, That's I, I guess. Yeah. And my question, I think my next one has something to do with that, which is I have to imagine with as many stills as you have, a large part of your job, which may not get thought about as much, is the maintenance and repair work that has to happen over time. And that I, I would imagine you can't have all these stills in operation once you've got to have some sort of programmatic type of thing happening where you're constantly replacing and fixing things. And then, you know, I was just curious to see how do you manage that? So we have a scheduled program annually where every maintenance is scheduled and the production is scheduled around that. So for our the metal stills, we typically would start about twice a year, about two to three weeks in total, where we do general maintenance. But because all stills are not operated on all days during the year, mm-hmm. uh, we're able to get a schedule within each month, which of the sales will be brought offline so we can do maintenance in those. So it's all scheduled. Yeah. Uh, it's managed through our computerized maintenance management software. And so once the maintenance is coming due, there's an alarm that sets the work orders generated. The engineers do their analysis and put together all of the needs and resources required. So when that time comes, it's offline. They move in, you know, they, they change the wheel on the Formula One car yeah. and they send <laughs> over the pit. Pit stop right away, you know, within 0.002 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like that. Right, in a matter of speaking. A well-practiced team, that's right. Yeah, I'm imagining a, a pit right. crew coming and they've got a big yeah, pile yeah. of like the, the <laughs> yeah. green heart wood there to, yeah. to, you know, put on the stills and everything. Yes. <laughs> um, I, did, I want to talk a little bit more about the the wooden stills, particularly the Port Morant and Versailles, the, the two wooden pot stills. When, when I taste rums from those stills, they're, they're both very distinct from one another, but you can also kind of tell that they are linked in some they share some qualities you can mm-hmm. almost tell like the rums that come from them are, are, are brothers or sisters or something like that and what i wanted to ask was what enables those differences in profile to take place does it just come down to the fact that the port marat still is a double still and the versailles is single or are there other factors at play that really lead to such pronounced differences in the distillate that you get from those two stills yes it mainly comes down to the double batch distillation as opposed to the single batch distillation. With the double batch, the second pot is driven by the first pot, but only when the pressure in the first pot is sufficient mm-hmm. to overcome the pressure in the second pot. What that means is that we basically have to reach a high enough pressure in the first pot to even begin distillation in the second pot. And so by the time the second pot has gone through its distillation, you would have reached overall a a higher pressure, uh, which essentially means that more components will be distilled over. Mm. In addition to that, the process is somewhat reactive. So because it takes a longer time to get up to that higher pressure, you have more of those longer chain reactions taking place. So on balance you have more heavier components being produced and eventually more of them being distilled over into the product. So by weight, the double pot still tends to be a heavier product than the single pot still. So if I give you an order of magnitude range, if a batch of our double pot, for example, 
has about 500 parts per million of the heavier stuff. Those heavier conjunctors, heavier alcohols, and so on. The single part would have about 300 plus, which is still heavy. But definitely, that difference, 200 or so, definitely impacts the flavors. Because not, no, not only is it more of the heavier stuff, but because you have more reactions that produced different variations, you have a wider variety of flavor components. Mm. And so that's why the, the double pot still is heavier on the note, but also offers different flavors mm. because its composition changes slightly with a longer distillation run. By comparison, all of the column stills would probably get about 50 or less mm-hmm. in terms of those heavier components. So the pot stills are definitely on the heavier side of things, but even on that spectrum, you can introduce variation by having a double or a single distillation in the pots. The other question I had about those stills, the, the Port Morant and the Versailles, they, they're so distinctive. I feel like you can pick them out in blends. They just shine through. It's, it's, it's so hard to find something else that reminds me of those, those rums in, in, across the whole category. And what I wanted to ask is, how much of that is owed to the fact that parts of them are wooden, and the the reason why I'm asking is because, as I understand it, those are two of the only remaining wooden stills in the world. And I was just thinking to myself, if the the if the distinctive character of those rums is owed in some part to the wood, you know, why doesn't anyone else in the world try making wooden stills now? Like, wouldn't that be something that another distillery might want to have in their arsenal? What kind of prevents other people from doing that? Well, I don't think it's for want of trying. But um, what is difficult to maintain, mm. right? Yeah. And yeah. especially if you know other other brands have built their presence around a certain price structure, it becomes difficult to go into what because it's more expensive, efficiency is much less, the maintenance is a lot more finicky, and that's all. So face it, we are blessed in Guyana with lots of green heart. Mm-hmm. It is a controlled species, but it is available, and so that enables us to to build these spots in a and a way that adds a lot of longevity to their operation. So, you know, we, we take pride, in fact, in being able to maintain them, but definitely the, the kind of weather that's been chosen plays a great role in their longevity. Hmm. I, if, I want, if I comment a bit about what you, what you alluded to earlier, why wood versus, you know, other metal stills? Well, the main advantage that wood gives is that it doesn't conduct Heat, mm, right, um, right. The way it would. Mm-hmm. So heating with steam uh, means that a lot of that heat is actually retained within right. the pot, as opposed to if it were a metal still, which means that it's able to reach a higher pressure and higher temperature. Mm. And as I explained earlier, that's an important factor in right. those longer chain reactions because it spends longer in the pot, it reaches higher temperatures. And therefore, more of those reactions can be catalyzed during that distillation process. And that helps to produce a heavier type row. The question is, um, would another brand, for example, want to go through that added expense and make interest an operational headache right. just to produce a heavy rum, of which they probably would only use a small percentage mm-hmm. in their brand. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the proposition might not be so attractive. But for us, because it's already embedded in what we do, it's part of our mm-hmm. identity. Right. So the case has made itself. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
I'm, I'm just glad that they're still going because uh, having more Port Moran and more for sales, more in more in the, in the world is a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Sean, somewhat interestingly, you mentioned in a previous interview that some of your favorite rums, or maybe your favorite that you produce, are the Metal Coffee still and from the Saval, which are both column stills. And as yes. that interviewer rightly pointed out with you, a large portion of diehard rum fans, many of which listen to this podcast, seem to gravitate and even fawn over the pot still rums far more often. So I wanted to give you a moment to answer, why do you think column still rums don't get the same amount of love out there from rum geeks? And how can we convince them <laughs> to give column still rums more attention? I think part of that stemmed from the way we approach things here at DDL. Our philosophy is that whichever still is being used, the rum must be produced with its full character. While that may seem like a very simple proposition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is not as widespread in the industry as you might expect. Many producers find it easier to produce a light style of rum, a medium perhaps, and maybe get some heavier rum either by a pot or maybe the source externally. And then to interblend the ratios to produce whatever balance of profile you're looking for. And so for them, a light column still rum is completely uninteresting. For us, a light or medium column still rum has personality, right? It's only light because the total, you know, parts familiar presence of every other component is small, mm -hmm. but it is not light. It is certainly prominent in terms of its flavors and aromas. So I told you earlier about finding that creamy chocolate coconut note. Mm -hmm. That's a light rum, mm -hmm. right? It has less than 10 parts per million of anything present. That certainly is light. But sort of figuring out that, that the thrill is in the hunt. And so once <laughs> you have sort of made that catch, it makes the meal that much more exciting. Mm. So for me... Our light rums are not boring. They're interesting to start with. They're delicious because they offer a multiplicity of flavors and aromas. So they allow you for that to enjoy that kind of experience as opposed to just being light and bland. They're certainly not. Yeah. Um, in my case, if I were to contrast that with the pot stills, yes, the, the pot still is actually a very delicious rum. And you know, being a part of Eldorado 15, for example, the 15 is my all-time favorite rum. Mm -hmm. So definitely, I do enjoy a pot, don't get me wrong. But from a distillation point of view, the column stills rum, because we are pursuing a specific flavor profile for every rum market we make, and there are over two dozens of them, it means that the challenge to the distiller is in some ways a lot more to get the flavor chemistry right each time for the column stills and with the pot stills. Even though, and this may be a bit oxymoronic, that the pot stills are more difficult to operate and maintain because they lose so much no one wants to lose. You kind of have to figure out, how do I get the best efficiency? So from an efficiency point of view, it's definitely more challenging. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of the intrinsic chemistry mm -hmm. of the product, the column stills offer a lot more possibilities, and that alone makes it a more exciting challenge. And I think every time I get that challenge right, it makes it me, it makes it even more welcoming for me to want to sip and you know enjoy the fruits of all that labor. Yeah. So that's kind of where I come from when I said that I I like the coffee still rums more because they're delicious, and when it is right, that balance of so many different profiles come together. 
just makes it all the more worth it. But that does not mean that operationally, it's easier to achieve than mm. the pot still because those those guys are very finicky. It, it sounds yeah. like what I'm hearing is that you there's more of a possibility of versatility with the column still. So that opens yes. up. You can make a lot of different choices. As you were saying, you can hunt yes. for a lot of different flavors. Whereas it sounds like with the pot stills, it's more... Um, I don't want to say you're locked into a certain flavor profile, but there's less adjustments and less things that you can do. Is that is yeah, that a correct way? Get what you of, get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a correct way of restating yeah. it? Yes, yes. There's, there's certainly a, a, a narrow spectrum of flavor voice of flavor profiles that can be achieved with the pot, and that spectrum grows, you know, significantly more with the column still. So depending on what you're looking. And we sometimes, for example, get inquiries on the bulk rum side, not the branded side, but bulk rum. And people ask for some pretty, you know, peculiar flavors sometimes. <laughs> and you can figure out how do you how do you get that? And sometimes it's not very easy. Sometimes we have to totally upend the way we operate is still just to kind of find where those notes are and, and narrow it down to that. Um, with a pot still, you have much less flexibility to do that kind of exploration. Because remember, everything distills over. You just choose where your cuts are, right? right? You know, so with the column stills, you get the opportunity to really do a lot more. And that's what I like. What What are some of the more peculiar requests <laughs> that you've gotten in terms of a, a certain flavor profile people are seeking? Well, I can tell you one. There is a particular cheesy note. Okay. Um, you know, and I was like, cheesy? Wow, this is this is interesting. You know, it's faint, but, but it's, it's, it's definite. It's, you know, you, you, you say, wow, where, where did we get this from? And, and so you, you, you do your research. It's okay, all right, cheesy. Perhaps one can think along the line, though this might sound undesirable. Um, so there's a particular compound called butyric acid mm-hmm. that yeah, some yeah. may describe as cheesy, some as baby vomit, vomit and so yeah. on. Right, right. Right, so how do we kind of narrow it down to just this one note? That's just an example of how the job can become interesting. Right. Then you have so many possibilities on the column stills. And here's an, one coming from left field that you kind of have to figure out how to get it done. Yeah. I think one thing that's so interesting to me about DDL and your approach to making rum, I think a lot of times when we talk about Jamaican rums and things like that, it's it's less about variety of stills and more about different fermentation methods and things like that. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, and and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that at DDL, almost everything comes from the same fermentation, the same rum wash. I know you have the high ester still that you mentioned earlier that has the DHE mark that has a different fermentation method. But I, I wanted to ask, is is the understanding correct that, you know, it's it's basically the same wash and how you make your marks just comes down to all the, the, the different stills and the variety of things you can do on some of those stills, particularly the column stills, as you mentioned. Full marks. Yes, your understanding is spot on. The right. same fermented wash was going to be different still, except the higher stir. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and therefore that means that those flavor profiles uh are pursued directly on the distillation still. Nowhere, no place else. Um however, having said that, we do benefit from having a fermented wash profile that's fairly broad and profound in terms of different components present. Mm. So because we start with fairly rich fermented wash, we do have that flexibility 
undistilled to isolate exactly what we're looking for. And because it's, it's therefore that broad, there's no need to differentiate. The differentiation right. come, comes by isolating and segregating exactly what we want to retain in the product on the distillation still. So that's where the difference comes in. I think, um, you know, before this, I was reading back over Matt Petrick's writing, and he has all the DDL marks, you know, listed and everything. And I, I wanted to ask what the current count of rum marks is. I think it's around 20 or something like that. But I wanted to ask about that. And then I also wanted to ask, what, this this goes back to the, the, the story of consolidation that I was mentioning earlier, where you have these stills that have kind of traveled through various estates. And one thing that's so interesting to me is just how um, it's not just the stills that have survived, you know, it's some of the same marks going by the same names, you know, going back 50 plus years that have been produced all those times. And so what I wanted to ask was, if someone were to have a, a Port Morant, a PM mark rum that was distilled at Iflot, which is, I believe, the, distil- the distillery it was at before it came to Diamond, and then they had a PM rum distilled at Diamond and they had them back-to-back, same age, done the same way, would there be a noticeable difference at all? Would it surprise you if I say that the team that distilled the rum at Iflot came to Diamond when it still was transferred to Diamond? Ah, okay. So So, the whole team as well. That's right. That know-how transferred. And even, even now, the team that we have operating have been with us for 15, across some over 20 years. So they too would have had a chance to interface with the prior team. So longevity and that succession planning is very much important to ensure that the knowledge is transferred and that it is preserved more or less. So everyone pretty much by the time they take over charge of the distillation, they would have been pretty much grounded in the way we do things. Mm. For that reason, it's absolutely consistent. I should also say that, you know, we have a, a fairly stringent program of, of maintaining reference standards of all of the products. Right. So that's maintained both at our central library as well as at the plant. And each product is assessed twice, both at the library as well as the plant. And you can see a third time depending on where the final use is. So because of that, we've been able to maintain that consistency in quality. The one one more thing I wanted to ask about the marks was I know there you you I think this was an interview you did with Matt and you were talking about choices had to be made you know do we want to bring all of these stills or are there certain stills that we can reproduce some of the marks that were made on these stills on you know a still like the Saval still which is very versatile and so I know along the way during this consolidation not every single still was preserved. Some of the marks that were made on older stills are now made on the Saval still. And, and correct me if, if I got any of that wrong. But what I wanted to ask is, are, are there any historic marks that are no longer in production or that, you know, fell off? I know you said some of the marks, the, de- the, de- the reason for making them is kind of driven by bulk demand and things like that. So <laughs> are there any marks that have kind of been re- retired, so to speak, over the years? I wouldn't say retired, but there are some marks that are definitely not produced often, if at all. They're, they're on sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But we, we, we have retained reference standards. And yeah. of course, we have retained the production settings for those marks. But of course, if the demand for it isn't as strong or another mark satisfies the purpose equally as well, then obviously the production for it 
you know, just doesn't take yeah. place. And so there are a few marks that I would say don't see as much sun as they would at some point in time. But, you know, definitely if, let's say, a customer comes and says, look, I would like to have some Blairman, for example, we absolutely can produce it. And we have the reference standard against which to ensure consistency. So, yes. Some things fall out of favor over time, but then... Sometimes they come back. That's, Sometimes they that's, come back. That's the power of maintaining I, I, actually, good records. Yeah. <laughs> in, in in my time here, you know, there definitely have been a few times where you know some customers who, and, and you know, if we go back to, to the DDL chairman and the current chairman and the previous chairman, they've been with us for so long. Our current chairman, I think, fifty four years or thereabouts, wow. or fifty three years, long, 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 long. So they have yeah. long relationships. Sometimes when they tell you stories, oh, when we met this person in the UK and this is how this particular supply chain got set up, you know, it really is exotic someday. Huh. But so, yeah, so sometimes, you know, so, some supply chain might have been disrupted or maybe discontinued and some new owner bought over the brand or whatever and they come saying, hey, you guys used to supply us so-and-so, can you look into supplying this for us? And you literally have to look at the files. I've had an experience and uh, say, okay, this is what we supplied. How do we produce this? Let's get going. And sometimes with a bit of tweaking, of course, once you reactivate, but getting it right at the end, that, that is what matters. Hmm. Right? So that's why I said we haven't discontinued any of the marks. It's just a matter of supply and demand, what gets produced and what is basically not in demand at the moment. So right. it's kind of part. Right. Yeah. So so basically, if, if the right customer came along and they want some, you know, you mentioned Blairmont. I think yes. some of the other ones I've, I've read about are like KFM, AW, maybe. I don't know if yes. those are ones that are less common. Yes. But um, so you can still, if it makes sense, you know, from an economic yes. standpoint, you could dial up yes. the recipe and, and get those marks going again. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> so KFM is a good example where we've had an inquiry, you know, a couple of years back in the recent, in the recent past. That's a good example of what. So you've mm. got to figure it out, okay, this is what we do, and you get it going. So speaking of things that uh, maybe aren't in too much demand right now, at least not <laughs> here in American yeah. markets. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. I think the problem is we don't have any. So I wanted to ask you about unaged rum. I, I think when people think of Guyanese rum, they don't think of unaged rum. But for you know us, we'd love the opportunity to experience those different stills and maybe different marks without the barrel influence. Why don't we see very much unaged releases from DDL? Is that something you've thought about doing? Or I know there's maybe been a couple of independent bottlers that have done it, but it really doesn't seem to be, at least not in the American market from what I can see. Well, if you understand the the, the cultural heritage of Guyana. Unaged rum or lightly aged rums yeah. typically were considered to be, you know, standard of poor quality, you know, not very interesting, cheap. Um, and this is precisely what that perception of beer battling against. We believe that rum is as premium as any other spirit, is as sophisticated and delicious and, and, and fine as any other spirit. And to the extent, therefore, that the direction that has taken us is, is, you know, more premium quality, the whole premiumization drive, now leading in uh, strength releases. Uh, economically, it makes sense to follow that path. If we are to disabuse that historical perception of rum as being cheap and, and not aged and, mm -hmm. you know, uninteresting. So that's the only reason. Now, I can tell you, 
that if an interesting market develops for our age realm, that definitely will catch our attention because, of course, it's easy to fulfill that. Right. But uh, at the moment, that's not something, you know, that's yeah. registering significantly in our, on our radar. Unfortunately, two rum, geeks, two rum geeks asking for that is not enough <laughs> to start putting it into production. I get it. <laughs> We're doing our part, though, well, I can tell you what We're doing our part. We, we, we have gotten some inquiries, for example, but more from an education point of view right. of right. Uh, sampling the onions and the English drums. So we've had some of those engagements. But from a general consumer point of view, you know, unless we get signals that this is something that can really take off, it may not be something that we want to just for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. On the note of, you know, types of rum we we rarely see from DDL, you mentioned the high ester still earlier, which I know you don't talk about it a lot and i'm actually as as much you know john and i are always talking about uh how how great transparency is for rum and everything i still do like the idea of, of distilleries maintaining some some mystery around some of what they do so i don't want you to reveal all of the secrets of the <laughs> high ester still and, and your process for that but one, one thing that i i was curious to ask is when we hear high ester rum, the first place that we, that I, John, I think you would agree with me, the first place we go to is Jamaica. Jamaica is not the only place now where high ester rum is made, but I think that that Jamaican process is the first thing that comes to people's mind. And so I wanted to see if you could speak to it all. Are, are, are there similarities to DDL's approach to high ester production to sort of the Jamaican high ester production? Are there similarities or are there clear differences? And, and can you distinguish between, between them for us? Well, first of all, you don't have to worry about me releasing all my secrets because I feel no such temptation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To contrast with the Jamaican high esters, um, the Jamaican high esters tend to rely heavily on the presence of bacteria to produce the components that eventually lead to the esterification. Mm -hmm. So they would purposely, for example, have the dunder pits and add back some of that stuff back to the feed fermenting batch you know, leave it for the appropriate time so that the ester conk would, would build. Of course, what that means is that concomitant with the high esters would also be some of the heavier components because that natural biological process, you know, takes it in both directions. So yes, it's high in esters, but it also tends to be fairly heavy mm-hmm. and also funky mm-hmm. because of all of that heavier components that are also present. For us, our emphasis is on the high ester, but without the funk. So the process doesn't emphasize as heavily the presence of those bacterial species that will then lead to a lot of the esters, primarily because that would also produce the heavier components, which we are not targeting. Our process tends to focus on a lot more starches, so shun sugars. So we would purposely add, you know, some of the local foods, for example, that would help to augment the production or the conversion of glucose to alcohol and the acid that would produce the esters. And then we spike in a very unique way to produce a very specific note of the esters. And so for us, it's almost like you, it's a unimodal product where you get a huge spike in esters. Yes, there's some of everything else, but it isn't quite as much as you would see, for example, in the Jamaican dead spirits. Mm which relies on natural biological reaction of the bacteria, which, of course, produces, like I said, esters, but also a lot of the heavier components. I would say that's the major difference. 
And, and this is this is a, a, a rum style that's the, I know the still has been in use since the fifties. Is that correct? Well, we would have had a small demonstration still dating back to that time, but of more recent vintage, I believe it was in the nineteen eighties okay. um, when that still was decommissioned and upgraded by a larger still produced by the same manufacturer, John Doerr. Got it. Yeah. I know so many people are going to be sitting at home listening to this. Uh, the, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are the, 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 the types of people who want to find the highest, highest ester rum possible and just drink it at the highest proof possible just so they can kind of walk and, and peek over the edge of mm-hmm. flavor into the abyss sort of. So um, <laughs> I'm imagining that they're just dying to be able to try some of the, 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 the DHE high ester rum on its own, which I'm, I'm guessing is not in the cards from the, the product development team. No, no uh, still strength high ester unaged rum probably coming from, uh, from DDL anytime soon, I'm guessing. I, I would imagine not. <laughs> but I do imagine perhaps we opportunities for presenting the high ester if perhaps in a different way than you have just demonstrated, you've just talked about. Yeah. Sean's just smacking us down right now. Unage, <laughs> high ester, psh, no, no none didn't. of that. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite as violently, you know. But like I said, you know, there, are, there are some things that we listen to the cues, and um, if we think yeah. that it's a serious proposition, we go after it. Yeah. No doubt about that. Yeah. So switching to the the source material a little bit, my understanding is that the majority of the molasses comes from Gaisuko, which is a mostly Guyanese government-owned sugar company. But that had it's it's struggled recently to produce enough sugar and molasses. So much so, so I think that DDL had to go and find other sources just to make sure you reach your output levels. So I wanted to ask, is that still the case? And if so, what challenges has that created from a consistency standpoint? And how do how do you address that for the future for molasses source? Good question, because, you know, it's no secret that the sugar industry in Guyana has been going through some tough times. Yeah. I know that the government, it's a state-owned industry, and the government has been investing significant resources in retooling the sugar industry with the hope that they can recover a lot of those volumes. But in the meanwhile, you know, we have had to source externally. Fortunately for us, you know, the, it, it, it start, once we recognize those signals, we started with a small amount of imports. And would have recognized early on some of the important differences and would have had to figure out how we tweak our fermentation process mm-hmm. so as to produce a roughly com- comparable batch. And yes, there were some changes, but luckily, you know, we, we maybe had that task when it was the smaller share of our inputs. So having successfully navigated that period, now that we're importing you know, the greater share of our molasses inputs. I would say we pretty much have figured out what are the process changes required to uh, produce a comparable batch. So ironically, well, not ironically, but interestingly, we don't have a quality difference at the end of the day between what we distill then versus now. Mm -hmm. Remember also that the fermentation here tends to be fairly rich and we only isolate just those components that we need for the product at the point of distillation. So as long as we get the fermented batch, you know, roughly comparable, then distillation is pretty much able to do the same job and mm. produce the same product. And that has been our experience. So we have been able to source from Central America, from, you know, Mexico and North America, from Dominican Republic, 
more recently. And in our cases, we've been able to adapt. In some cases, because of where the sugar is grown, perhaps the soil has less nitrogen, perhaps mm-hmm. more sulfur. And so we simply adapt our nutrient protocol, for example. There been cases where we've had to adapt the bricks ratio, the dilution ratio. So optimize the presence of yeast and even the yeast to molasses ratio sometimes too has had to be tweaked. So there are various changes that are made to compensate for those, for those differences. Sometimes we tweak the set parameters or we tweak the, the end parameters just so as to maintain within its core the same, roughly the same quality of batch. And I think by now we have, we have been successful at it. So there's no concern anymore about the source affecting the quality of the product. Yeah. And, and real quickly before we move on, I know a couple of years you ex- you mentioned you were experimenting with evaporated cane syrup, or sorry, I guess it's evaporated cane juice into cane syrup. Can you give us a quick update on, on where you're at with that? Have you continued that experiment? Well, we haven't continued only because the asset, you know, wasn't divested the way we you know, were pursuing at that time. But certainly... Well, we had a subsequent trial, I would say, about uh, three years ago. Yes, mm-hmm. three years ago, perhaps four years ago. Yes, we had a subsequent trial. And having learned from the first experience, we were able to predictably produce from that second batch. So I would say by now we are well learned in the process. And, and so if we ever get to that stage, we are still pursuing opportunities where if, for example... We have to get into some extent of cane cultivation for right. whatever it's worth. In such a case, we would not be producing sugar, at least not in a significant way. And so the bulk of the conversion of that sugar cane would be for the evaporated, um, mm-hmm. the more high test kind of molasses. And if that's the case, then we certainly by now, we have a fairly you know, cleared regime of how we would utilize that for fermentation. Shifting gears a little bit again, you know, something I know you've discussed in many other interviews over the last few years is the practice of aging with caramel in the in the barrel. And I think most of our listeners are aware that they kind of know the backstory that the distillery started decreasing the amount aged that way several years ago. And that's kind of now beginning to express itself in a lot of the El Dorado products, but specifically like the longer aged ones. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who have done kind of like comparisons with the newer bottles of 12 versus the older ones, newer bottles of 15 versus the other ones. And can, you know, pick up a a perceptible difference. And what, what I wanted to ask was just, what kind of went into the decision to stop utilizing that practice as frequently? And, and you know, when did that happen? And, and what does the process look like now? Well, it, it started, I believe, as an economic decision or an economic interest point, because obviously caramel is an added cost, right? right? It was only added because historically we supplied bulk rums that were caramel colored for the purpose of transport, and direct consumption upon reaching their destination. But if that proposition no longer applied because we now own our own brands, do we still need to add caramel? Um, the other factor was, of course, in laying down additional barrel warehouses as part of the planning for future growth and expansion of our brands, would we, would we be able to sustain a higher supply of caramel at that higher level output? And you know, would we even need to do so? So it was kind of like, would it be worth the trouble to continue adding caramel and therefore having to deal with a growing demand that would 
require more carbon. Mm. Mm. So they, so that was a thought process. And so the, the leadership of the company at that time thought, well, how would we try with some barrels laid down with rums without the car and milk? Because we are always trying to innovate to make our product better, even mm-hmm. if it offers the same profile and right. characteristic. And so that started in a very small way as, as a purely economic decision. The early signs were favorable. I, I rather suspect that part of that was that so in the past, when there were fewer warehousing facilities, the barrels would have gone through many trips of, of use. You know, it's liquid decanted, filled again, liquid decanted, filled mm-hmm. again, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But with, with bigger warehouses, well, we can actually have more fresh one, mm. you know, freshly dumped ex-urban barrels. And so the, the thought process was perhaps the fresh wood would be able to impact the spirit in a more uh, pronounced manner. And therefore, reduce the need for caramel, certainly for the purpose of achieving a higher color in the age spirit. And, and so once the rums were trapped in those early days, it was promising. It was definitely promising. Um, I believe it was 2009, 2010, when, you know, the controversy about the amount of sugars in the rum, you know, was you know, taking its head. Mm-hmm. It did puzzle us, um, but our master blender who is in charge of our quality program here at DDL, you know, would have done significant testing of products across different ages, different stills, etc. And the, the one thing that popped out to us was that the rums aged with caramel were the ones that tended to have higher than those that were aged without, mm-hmm. and that the longer it was aged, the higher that sugar content became. So now there was added impetus. It was economic, but it was also from a product proposition point of view. That if truly we wanted to offer products with lower sugars, then caramel clearly was not the direction to go. Mm. Um, so having those early successes, the program was expanded up. And well, by now the, the story is known that now that we have a significant, um, of course, we still have some. We have many barrels still with caramel because it was a phased process. Right, right, But right. definitely, I can say that by now the rums coming out of barrels, you know, with newer wood and without aids being aged with caramel, are able to really mature in, in, in quite the same way, I would say, offering a lot of the same flavor profiles and having a very similar color profile and chemical profile, but without the caramel and mm. therefore without those residual sugars that would develop during the aging process due to the presence of caramel. So that's clearly the evolution of where we are. But by now, we certainly are on the uncolored rums into barrels. There are few marks that still retain, for historical reasons, the requirement for caramel. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the main, our main marks are now used without. And so um, it's it's so fascinating to think about kind of the the decision making and planning that has to go into something like that because of you know the various age statement bottlings you have and that you know the different blends that go in. I can't imagine kind of like the logistics of that. My brain isn't built for it. But do do you think we will will people continue? Like, will there be small shifts that still happen in some of the rums as, you know, the the stock ages out of some of those older barrels that still have the caramel? Or are the rums, like, 
the flagship 12, 15, are they pretty much, have they arrived at where they're going to be or where there's still, will those still be little minute perceptible differences people will pick up in the coming years? I think they have leveled out. Mm. I think they have leveled up. Um, and, and so having done so, we are now on a massive expansion drive. So from 2004, when that decision was made upon the commissioning of the then new barrel warehouse, we have since added three others, and we are now about to break ground on another two. Wow. Those two warehouses alone will be 50% of our existing six warehouses. Wow. Mm. So those are big, big Quite warehouses. Big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. And it will all be built around product aids without carnival. Hmm. I would say we have leveled out. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit earlier the cask strength series, which I've seen once here and there. Uh, and also I've seen some cask finish series that, that you all have experimented with. Not doesn't look like there was very very many bottles produced, but uh, you know it's it's a big thing when you see those around. Kind of ooh, it kind of catches your eye. I wanted to ask you, kind of maybe in this format is best. If you had a time machine, and you could use it to check on what DDL is producing or what rums are being released ten years from today, what do you imagine you would see? Mm. That's a good question. I think definitely along the same lines of the, the special finishes, the double matured rums. Because we, we, we kind of have been trying to ask our, I guess, 20, 33 selves, um, <laughs> you know, what do you need? And trying to figure out no. So that's actually an active conversation. Yes, yes. You know, we have identified a few themes, a few lines that we want to pursue so that... Well, while obviously there's a lot of potential for this this category to grow, we want to do so in a way that is thematically consistent. So, for example, do we want to pursue a line of of sherries, for example, um, as distinct from, let's say, wines that are that are GI protected from the main you know wine growing regions, say France as opposed to Spain mm. or Italy. Right. Um, so we are working up themes along which to pursue so that while we started with a few barrels and therefore you have a few bottles, if we're going to go in a bigger way, we want to be sure that there is a, a sensible story that has motivated what we're doing. And so, yes, we are trying to ask our 2033 cells, but what do you want? So that we kind of, you know, put those in place now. But you don't have a time machine, so yeah, maybe that's that's the next thing we have to you know figure out a way to build there. Yeah, right. I, I, I feel like after hearing about your background, if someone were going to invent a time machine for exactly. distillers, it would be it would be Sean Caleb. Um, I, I love that idea of ask, asking your twenty thirty three self what what you need. If you're if if you're 2023 self were to talk to your 2013 self did 2013 sean make good decisions about what 2023 sean would need well i don't want to personalize it too much but i'm <laughs> the, definitely the team, right. that the visionaries in the company i think very good decisions have been made because we're seeing the fruits of that and uh and and that's why we're still relevant today because yes we're known for quality but to be innovating in, in, in a product range that continues to keep the story interesting mm. was not an easy thing to do. And even harking back to some of the early decisions that were made, in a certain 2004, I was on campus, you know, when uh, <laughs> right. the decision, for example, right. was made. So I, 
I, I definitely credit my more seasoned colleagues in making wise decisions. And certainly I admire input now, um, coming from you know, a Gen Z perspective, so to speak. Uh, yeah, we have to anticipate what, what uh, by then it may be anticipating the needs of Generation Alpha is the next one, right? After oh Z. Goodness, I think I've it? read it's Gen Alpha. So we have to be asking ourselves, That's what, right. is, That's what is Gen Alpha going to be wanting to drink? Which by then, maybe Gen Z will be right. more in the uh, demographic that's purchasing higher-end rums. But I don't know. I plan on being here then, and I'm still buying <laughs> yeah, Eldorado we'll still rum. Be, so. We'll still be around, yeah. Um, <laughs> you still keep the, keep the millennials I in something mind. for you. that's right that's right we have a couple more questions for you and then then we'll wrap up but i wanted to ask a fun question and just after hearing about kind of your approach to learning and everything you know you talked about visiting saint lucia and visiting australia i i I may be presuming a little bit but you strike me as someone who is probably interested in learning about how other rum producers make things so you strike me as someone who has probably visited a lot of other distilleries and thinking about the amazing collection of stills you have at ddl something i wanted to ask you was if you could add any other still in the world to the collection that you have there at ddl is there a certain one that comes to mind that you would want and why a copper pot ah copper Uh, pot okay copper pot yes you know, because you know, we we have kept with the wooden heritage, and and that's that served its purpose. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would be nice to have a copper pot like other places have. You know, they're, they're the inverse of us. You know, we have wood, we have yeah. copper. Yeah. You know, to to get into that part of the play scene, I would say. Yeah, they're, they're like, we'll trade you all yours <laughs> for our one copper pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One's a little harder to get than the other, I feel at like. Least, <laughs> at least they recognize the equity in what we have, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so talking a little bit about sustainability, I know there's been a lot of significant efforts towards that there, including converting liquid waste into methane, and you use that as fuel for running the plant. There's the capturing of CO2 emissions to convert into carbonation for some of the soft drinks you all produce at DDL, which I didn't even know until I started <laughs> researching this. And I was like, wow, you guys make a lot of stuff outside of rum. Um, the website says your goal is to be a 100% self-sustaining using the biomethane. How close are you now to doing that? And how important is that platform to you personally? So I would say we're about halfway there. So at the moment, we are in the planning process for expanding our biomethanization plan, which would enable us to achieve a higher production of methane. In addition to that, we our laboratory has been doing some R&D work in conjunction with, with manufacturers who themselves have research laboratories to figure out ways to extend our wastewater treatment process to eat even more methane gas generation out of it. Um, we've had some early success, and so we are moving towards the stage of working with them to kind of figure out how we scale this up. Once we can successfully have those blueprints in place, we'll then move towards you know production, construction, and and commissioning and so on. So that's definitely something that we are working again, working towards. In addition to that, we are acquiring, we have acquired a new boiler, which was designed with the capacity to run in 100% natural gas or a mixture as we currently do. I mean, you can operate on different modes without losing efficiency. And the point is, whatever deficit is not produced 
from our meter, our biomethanization plant, we can actually source and feed directly as liquefied natural gas. So between the two, we would still be able to get up to be 100% cleaner fuel and move away from the heavier liquid fossil fuels. Um, I, I, I should also add that because we generate our own power, at the moment, half of our power comes from liquefied natural gas. So that has replaced 50% of the diesel that we use for power production. We have also already done the pre-feasibility and feasibility studies for investing in solar to supply our entire facility. Um, so once we get those parameters finalized, and we're working through, we may have the space available that we have set aside for that process. And all of our new construction, or we are expanding our bottling plant for the not for the carbonated beverages. Mm-hmm. And we have built the design of those structures so that we can install solar plants, solar panels on the roof. So the intention is once we roll out our solar aspirations, whether ground-mounted or mounted or a combination of both, we would have the space available to fully meet our needs. So for us, sustainability is taken all around. It's in terms of energy and carbon emissions. It's also about reducing our water intensity. The new warehouses I talked about is being built with recovery of rainwater. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, sourced and trapped in a reservoir would then feed our operations. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are looking for every opportunity to improve the sustainability of what we do. And it really covers all grounds. Yeah. Yeah. It's always fascinating to hear how distilleries are approaching that. It's it's like each distillery is kind of a puzzle and you're figuring out how to, you know, get all the things to make it as much of a closed loop as possible. Yeah, I yeah. know it's a huge challenge, but um well Sean, thank you for taking the time to do this. I learned a ton. I think John did as well. Oh, yeah. uh, I know our listeners are gonna love hearing this. But before we go, we do have one final segment at the end of the show. It's a tradition on the Rumcast that we call the rapid fire round of questions. It's I think like a, a bonus round, a speed round of questions, if you will. Um, John, our co-host here, he always cooks up a selection of interesting, fun, off-the-wall questions. Some rum-related, some not rum-related. And we run you through those uh, in 60 seconds, and the goal is to answer as many as possible. So we present this as an optional thing. So far, nobody has turned us down, but I, I did want to present the option to you. Are you up for the, the challenge today? Bonus training for 2000, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew, I knew if, if anyone was going to be up for this, it would be a, a Princeton graduate. So exactly. This will be, the easiest, yes, this will be the easiest test you ever took. Um, I was thinking the same thing, yes. <laughs> okay. No pressure whatsoever. No, there, there are no wrong answers. So that's that's the beauty exactly. of this. Yeah. John, so if you're ready, I've got 60 seconds and go. All right, Sean, let's do this. Neat or on the rocks? On the rocks. I like to enjoy for quite a bit. And so on the rocks helps to really prolong the, the time I can enjoy. The experience. All right. Column, pot, or blend? Blend. Okay. Aged or it. unaged? Aged. Well, we knew that one. <laughs> Molasses or cane juice? Molasses. <laughs> we knew that one too. Your favorite person to share a great bottle of rum with? Oh, that's a good one. So I have a, a classmate of mine who works with me and sometimes we get together and we can talk 
present day. And when it was a little boy, I said, no, I think things were up to. So. <laughs> All right. You talk present day and 20, 2033 selves as well. Um, it, it, is it true, Sean, that instead of heads, hearts, and tails cuts, at Diamond Distillery, you instead refer to them as round, square, and princess cuts? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, untrue. <laughs> okay, okay. There's a good opportunity there, but okay. Um, the the best place making rum right now outside of Guyana. Ah, that's a good question. I I wouldn't say the best, but I would definitely say uninteresting, and would be Jamaica. Okay, fair, fair right. way of stating it. Yeah. I, I read that you were a former goalkeeper. Do you follow soccer now? Do you have a favorite team? I absolutely do. My travel bag is Barcelona. Ah. Um, but the English Premier League, I I mean, we're going through some tough times, though. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it'll come back get, around. Yeah, you, you'll get there eventually. Yeah, come back. We'll yeah. get there. We'll I'm, go. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. It's been 30 years for us. So, you know, <laughs> um, your personal favorite still at DDL. I think we said this already. Saval, actually. Is that still correct? You know, I, 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 I appear conflicted. <laughs> I would say my personal favorite is the coffee because I think it's the most delicious. From a distiller's point of view, the Savannah, but from which still do I love the product most from? The coffee. Love the different okay. perspectives. Yeah. 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 Many people have said that distilling is a marriage of science and art. For you, what percentage is science and what percentage is art? I would say about 60% is art and craft. The other wow. 40%. Ah. I-, I thought you were going to go the yeah. other way. I, I thought did of too. all the guests we've had, you've been so scientific in your approach. Okay. <laughs> Still the all art. Right, that's good it's to the hear. Art. A lot of science up front, but yeah. once you've figured out the science, you have to get the art and craft to keep it going. So that's okay. why I phrase it that way. True or false, DDL stands for Demerara Distillers Limited. We know that. But most people don't know that it also stands for Dangerously Delicious Libations. Is that true or false? <laughs> It's not true, but what I can tell you is there is actually a local acronym. And oh, we, really? We abhor it, but drink drunken later. Oh! <laughs> if you did not hear that from me, and we don't. Right. This podcast, it didn't come from you. If this was my boss, I will deny it. It was not me. It was my immediately generated. Or Sona speaking. Well, he's he's probably not going to listen to an hour and a half worth of podcasts. Right, so we, we put probably it at the won't. end. Yes, at the, the very end. end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and finally, how often do you actually have to spell iFlot? And do you have it memorized <laughs> at this point? <laughs> U-I-T-V-L-U-G-T. Funny oh, enough. So fast. Wow. I, you, could, you could do it backwards, I probably yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's time, by the way. <laughs> well done. Well, I, I, I was... I, so I went today about iFlot, and I spelled it U-I-T-V-L-U-F-T. I was like, come on, I mean, this is wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, even like sometimes. But I corrected yeah. myself. Right. I, I just want to use it in a game of Scrabble with, like, non-rum people. So I can say, look, it's iFlot. And then they look at me funny, and then I say, no, it's an actual thing. Uh, I don't think <laughs> you can. Silent G. You, you can't use proper nouns in, in Scrabble, uh, right? Don't, yeah, don't bring your facts into this, Will. <laughs> That is true. You're right. Well, um, Sean, excellent, excellent rapid fire round. Thank you for humoring us. Thank you for hanging out with us this afternoon. As I said, we were really looking forward to this and definitely lived up to expectations for us. Before before we let you go, anything to add? Um, Anything else we didn't get to that you want to share with people about DDL or about El Dorado or about the the state of Barcelona soccer team, the English Premier League? Anything else to add (laughs) before we go? 
Well, just that DDL, you know, is always innovating. We're always happy to listen to what our favorite fans love about <laughs> us and what more they want and to respond to that. So, you know, coming to a marketplace near you, you know, we'll be listening. And actually, having not traveled for the past three years, mm-hmm. I'm just about to embark or restart my travels to spread the good gospel about rums and other oh, Do you know what the first destination on the agenda is? So I'll be going to Toronto and to Alberta, both Calgary Calgary and Edmonton, and the the, the Brooklyn Bar Convent, BCB, and then across to the UK. So, you know, quite a bit happening. Excellent. At least for the restart stage. Yeah. 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 Well, Sean Caleb, an an honor to have you on the show, and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and I appreciate the opportunity. Lovely talking with you guys. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Roundcast. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Sean Caleb as much as we did. And if you have any you know, follow-up thoughts, questions, comments, we'd love to hear them. You can send us an email at host at rumcast.com. You can also message us on social media where I think we're going to be we're going to be posting something from this episode on social media. John, can you tell us about that? Yeah, from the intro, we wanted to make sure to post all of the seeds uh, in the brackets that we, we talked through. And we want to get feedback. We want to see. We, we've set the stage. Now let's move forward in the tournament and we need everybody's votes. So we'll figure out a way to do that and post it on social media and for people to vote who's going to win in each of those and get an eventual winner of our our bracket i'm using uh scare quotes there for that but yeah it'll just be interesting to see and then your feedback on how that worked out and what you would have done i'm gonna take a beating for that pusser's one seat i think Um, oh yeah uh, a second beating after the one you gave me but (laughs) i'm gonna go ahead and predict i think el dorado 15 is gonna come out as the winner on the el dorado side and i think hamilton 86 is going to come out as the winner on the other side. So that's my prediction. Uh, it's hard to disagree with you with the Eldorado 15 as being a favorite for that side. The other side, though, I'm, I'm going to say, ooh, I'm going to say we're going to go with the Hamilton 151. I'm going to stick yeah. with my favorites. If it's not the 86, it's the 151. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing people's thoughts on that uh, and all the ways they find to make fun of our selections. That'll be a blast. Uh, so... Anyway, I think that covers all our bases. People can find us on Facebook, at The Rumcast, Twitter, The Rumcast, Instagram, The Rumcast. You can subscribe to us on Patreon for bonus episodes and happy hours, all sorts of fun stuff. That's patreon.com slash The Rumcast, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash The Rumcast. But John, I think that wraps everything up for this episode, so... Yeah, I'll see just, you next time. Just don't forget to send Will an email at host at rumcast.com uh, to tell him how wrong he was Please about do. his number one seed. <laughs> Please do. I'll read yeah. I'll read the best uh, I'll I'll read the best burns on, on the next episode. <laughs> All, right, All right, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>